You know, when I made this machine, I probably should have installed microphones at the same time. You know, it would help if anyone wanted to record how we were to save the universe. Have you realized, including this week's film, that the first three have been released in 1999? No, my memory doesn't work that clearly. <laughs> I'm going to have to take your word for it. I, In fact, for each successive week, they've been released in 1999. These are like the first three movies that were released in January. January 1999, yeah. I was living in Hamilton, Ontario. <laughs> January 1999, I was living with my parents in the small town of Rocky Mountain House, which is an actual town that sounds made up. This is why we get along so well. <laughs> there's, as those are two very similar. To be fair, Hamilton sounds like it's made up too, but. Hamilton, surprisingly enough, was the, uh, I, I think by rumor, the uh, seat of the mafia while they still operated in uh, Ontario. And then when they collapsed somewhere in the some 70s or something, uh, Hamilton collapsed. And when I was there for McMaster, it was, uh, no offense, no, uh, offensively to Hamiltonians, uh, it was a dump. And I lived, uh, the McMaster, the university was actually quite nice. You couldn't walk anywhere in the streets. I've heard it's changed in the last 20 some odd years. The mafia, the Canadian mafia, is rumored to be the people who killed wrestler Dino Bravo. I'm, so, I'm fun blank. fact. Yeah, I'm blanking on Dino Bravo. And I'm pretty he sure. was a big in the 80s, so unless you were watching in the mid-80s, you would have no idea who that is. I'm, and more than that, unless you were from Quebec, probably still would not know who that mm. is. He was in the WWF, though, for a bit. Well, I was just thinking, in the mid-80s, I was watching WWF, including the Hulk Hogan cartoon show. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine. Cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen, this monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the machine. The machine. Oh gosh, okay, so the machine is getting really angry with us with this with uh, with this talking about this. Let's get into talking about uh geez, all that. Zach Seiler had it all. How's it going, man? President of his class, captain of the team, and dating the most popular girl in school until she went on spring break. So I've been dancing for maybe five minutes, right? And that's when it happened. I'm back on team! Brock is from the real world. Like the TV show, okay? But they kicked him out of the house. My condolences go out to Zach, who got, got dissed and, and dismissed by his magically delicious girlfriend. In order to save his reputation, he's taken on an impossible bet. I'll pick the girl. And you got six weeks to turn her into the prom queen. Gentlemen, we have a winner. Hey! You call off the bet, you lose. Well, I tried to get into David's house today, and apparently he's gotten bars on his windows. So I guess it's just going to be you and I here this week for the ad sponsors. I just want to let you know that Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. They also happen to be a sponsor this week, so let's take a listen to one of the other great shows on the network. Have you ever watched a movie and there was an actor in it that was all wrong for the part they were playing? Have you ever wanted to imagine someone else in the role? Never fear, that's precisely why Repodcasting exists. 
Listen as co-hosts and cousins Janet and Lucia recast their favorite and not-so-favorite movies with their dream cast. They also take a moment each episode to imagine which role in the film should have been given to Tony Danza, because, let's face it, Tony Danza would make every movie better. Repodcasting is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. You can find Repodcasting wherever you listen to podcasts or at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Happy listening. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is also brought to you by Inventures, a chance to connect with the best and brightest in global innovation. You can join 4,000 plus creative and curious minds on the frontier of innovation. You're going to be able to hear from more than 250 speakers on six program tracks, including the future of AI, which, I mean, I know a few things about myself already. But if you want to learn more, then you can go to Inventures. This is a place that connects entrepreneurs and startups with venture capitalists, angel investors, service providers, and thought leaders. This conference includes an education track for students too. Alberta Innovates is making all of this possible in Calgary from June 3rd to June 5th. Tickets are only $399 if you buy before the end of April. And if you're a student, you can get an early bird ticket right now for just $99. So you can get your tickets today at InventuresCanada.com. That's Inventures, I-N-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S, InventuresCanada.com. Okay, as we know from last week, we are talking about She's All That, this teen comedy from 1999. Uh, I want to know what your history is with this film. It's a classic. Okay, that's yeah. a very strong word, but okay. Yeah, put it up there with the great works of the uh, a generational work. I think of that. No, I I think I've seen it. I know I've seen it. I should maybe no. Let me. I like it. how how confident you are in this. I I have seen it, but I don't know if I saw it when it came out or if I saw it on video many years later or a date night thing when uh, blockbusters existed and you could get old movies for uh, pennies. Those were things that used to exist too. Uh, that many people have forgotten in this day and age. I remember this movie being advertised on television. I never saw this. We're so in. I'm trying to remember my age. It would probably have been in nine, 1995, 1996, maybe that uh, the theater in my small town burnt down. Uh, in fact, the story is, I actually don't know how much of this is true and just urban legend, but some teens tried to buy cigarettes. The people understandably said, no, you can't buy cigarettes because you're too young. And so the two teens torched the place just because they could. That's important. So there was not another theater built until I was moving away basically in the summer of 2000 or 2000. No, it would have been the summer of 2001 that the new theater was built. So I got to see like two or three movies before I went off to university. Yeah. How did you see movies then so that's the thing so this was vhs i that is how i interacted with most films not day and date when they were released but months and months later which means that the entire family had to agree yes we are renting this movie to watch so i have definitely seen a lot of movies from 1999 but that would not have been a movie that we could have all agreed on we saw the big hits we saw you know the big hit <laughs> but like uh well not that it was released very recently before this but like jurassic park that's how i saw that that's how i saw uh saving private ryan and that's how i saw shakespeare in love and how i saw the matrix well no sorry let me back up matrix i did see in theaters 
we'll talk about that one when and if we get to there who knows what we're talking about in the future um so that's how i interacted with movies all the disney stuff it was months and months later so that's my my how i grew up watching movies on a old crt television terrible resolution uh, off of vhs's uh, crt in 99 was not old kyle it was new yeah it was current at that time current yeah current's probably better. widescreen didn't well i guess widescreen televisions were sort of coming out at this time but it, they the were pro- not the rear projection tvs yeah exactly yeah yeah the other thing i was going to say is as soon as you said uh, disney vhs do you remember the big plastic clamshells? my parents still have the entire disney collection on vhs in their house that's the way to do it <laughs> yeah disney Real always knew shells. what they were doing yeah I was looking at it from afar. Um, I, I continue to say this, but it's like this closeted bisexual man. I could not, you know, really talk about my crushes and 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 that sort of thing. So JTT was close to my heart. Watching Home Improvement every week, uh, still at this time. Um, and for movie stars, I know that uh, like Freddie Prince Jr. was considered to be super attractive, and I've been told by female friends that he still is. Uh, but I just wasn't on on that train, so I was. I was mooning over other people. So this was just never anything that I really wanted to go and see in the first place. I don't know how to verbalize uh, being perplexed. Why, why are you perplexed? Well, Freddie Prince Jr. Per- oh, I per- see what you're perplexes saying. Perplexes me. Yeah. This, um, this is whole mystique. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, I guess for the younger people that might happen upon this record of history, uh, a time before the internet was uh, public mm-hmm. or sort of in its inception. And one could not simply Google what a celebrity was doing currently or mm-hmm. was guilty of in right. their past. So uh, you could only it, it, back then news was actually news. <laughs> it was something that, that had already happened. Yeah. So I couldn't see currently what was going on. I, I'm trying to remember when we got internet in our house. Would have probably been around sometime here in 1999. The first computer we got was definitely 97. I am blessed, I suppose. My dad was an architect. So we've had a computer in our house probably from the early 80s. Jeez Louise. Yeah, monochrome. I think he had a Mac. Look at this. I didn't know you were upper middle class here. <laughs> Mac 1, whatever the mm-hmm. first yeah, class. The, one the Mac 1, yeah. Uh, prior to the single box Mac where it was. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the drive. <clears throat> he re- he revealed to me when I talked to him about it a few years ago that the first one he bought cost I think ten thousand. Oh yeah, they were like so expensive. <laughs> like I mean, people complain about the the cost of Mac products now, but back then they were like super expensive. That's incomparable. Yeah. Um, my other quick Mac anecdote, not to waste too much time, uh, as an insurance advisor. Uh, by the way, the the machine is running Unix, so it is upset right now. <laughs> uh, when I was uh, I was an insurance agent. Went to a flood. And this man had lost his collection of classic Macs. Oh, no. And we couldn't appraise them because it's all relative value. Let's, let's get into this. Um, let me just uh, push this button. Get, wait for our huge printout here. All right. So She's All That was released January 29th, 1999. And the weekend it came out, no other major releases came out. So it was going unopposed at the box office. You call it a classic, but let me tell you what some other people think. Currently, it is rated 5.9 on IMDb. It is rated 51 from Metacritic. It is rated 40% on Rotten Tomatoes by critics and 55% if we're talking to the general public. Fools. Fools all of them. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray and currently, as of this recording at least, not available on any streaming platform in Canada. 
I find that kind of fascinating, actually, that it's actually still in. It is. And I would love to delve into this. Maybe we can even devote a future episode to this. How I find it's actually easier to find a lot of older films and not 90s films. For some reason, it's just sometimes really difficult to, to track them down. And I don't know why that is. We'll have to find an investigative journalist. The four stars that this film considers to be the stars. So it stars Freddie Prinze Jr. as Jack Seiler. Hot. Rachel Lee Cook as Lainey Boggs. Hot. Matthew Lillard as Brock Hudson. Oh, he got he was in the original, like the title cast. Okay. Here's the title cast. All right. Even though he's in it for like five minutes. Hackers, maybe. baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Paul Walker as Dean Sampson. He's back. He's back, baby. So we've done three movies, and two of them have had Paul Walker in them. It's the blue eyes. <laughs> and I the, mean, it has to be fallen into them. Pre-JT Curls. I mean, mm-hmm, he had the mm-hmm. full, uh, as we, in Korea, they call it the Pama. The, Why? What, what does that mean? It's just the way Koreans uh, Koreanize the term perm. Oh, okay. I got you. I got you. So he had beautiful, beautiful golden locks. Just a stunning, stunning actor. The Machine and Me have been forming, let's call it a relationship over the last week. And sometimes it spits out uh spoilers about what they're about i get to mention here on the podcast so allow me to blow your mind here uh as we go through some of these people so freddie prince jr he is the son of acclaimed comedian freddie prince and his first credit is as a guest star on the tv show family matters oh urkel urkel uh his role was tough guy that's what he was labeled as in that episode i can see it you can see it his arms yeah uh, his first film was in the Michelle Pfeiffer, Peter Gallagher film called To Jillian on Her 37th Birthday. That has been lost to time. Yep. I have no idea what that is. Blank. Uh, his star rose exponentially when he starred in the film I Know What You Did Last Summer. So that was the big thing that came out in 1997. So two years before this, huge, massive hit. Now, if you can recall, who was also... In I know what you did last summer. I don't know. I uh, I didn't watch it. Uh, Sarah Michelle Geller. That is correct. Sure. And then I'm confusing with so screens. Sarah Michelle Geller. If you don't know, and if you were in a '90s kid, which I consider myself as, so why? Because I was born in the '80s. Um, I grew up in the '90s, and so Sarah Michelle Geller, of course, is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Huge impact on my life. Uh, but this is where they met each other, and they eventually married one another. They are still married to this day, and they have a couple of kids. Uh, he would go on to do. I still know what you did last summer, the year before this, in 1998. And so he was at the peak of his popularity in 1999 as we go into it. After this, though, he would go on to star in Wing Commander. I was going to say, Wing Commander is probably the the zenith. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And star in other comedies in the early 2000s. Now, depending on your demographic, and if Matt Mort was listening to this, friend Matt Mort. Shout out to Mort. Uh, he would probably know him best as Fred in the live-action Scooby-Doo Scooby. and its sequel, Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed. There were two? There was two of them. Now, these movies, depending on who you talk to, are either made for kids or not at all made for kids. I've watched clips and I cannot imagine any child liking those movies because it is very, uh, I'd say, upper teen to adult-centric content. So he would go on to star in his own TV show called Freddy. It lasted like a season. I don't think it lasted even a full season. He would make a ton of TV guest appearances. This is where I will bring in my knowledge. I, I'm bringing this uh, completely off of the dome. Uh, but he would become a writer for 
the WWF, the the World Wrestling Federation, or WWE as it would have been known at that time, uh, for SmackDown, their television Mm. program, SmackDown specifically, in the year 2008 and into about 2009. Uh, But as with most writers on that program, they last about six months and then they leave. Mm. Um, Again, could be an entire other podcast talking about Vince McMahon and the way he runs his organization. Anyways, uh, to an entirely new generation, though, of people, you might know him as the voice of uh, Jarrus in the Star Wars Rebels cartoon. Nope. Uh, I do know him. I have watched that show, but uh, that is what you're probably going to know him from. He actually has a lot of voice work. Uh, And talking about Star Wars, if... This is going to be such old news when people finally listen to this episode. But if you can find the video of him being on a guest on another podcast and going off on how the force actually works, you should do it because it is great content. <laughs> and here's the, 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 the quick version of how to explain it to all these people who fucking think they get to decide. In the first fuck, if you want to do this like time-wise, Palpatine, you would say, and Yoda are the smartest too. Palpatine clearly smarter because Yoda was blind to the power of the dark side and the seduction of of Anakin. So let's talk about the seduction of Anakin fucking Skywalker for a second. (laughs) If the Emperor is the smartest dude in in the universe and knows that the Force dictates this, if he kills who he sees as a rival, Anakin, then he knows the Force is just going to fucking correct that because the Emperor knows this. These are George Lucas's words, not mine. So fuck you if you disagree. (laughs) agree with me straight straight up this is information not affirmation time straight up man so the emperor knows that upcoming you're going to be able to see him in the pilot of the new punky brewster tv series that's coming out here in a few months no way Mm -hmm. it is coming back because it's nostalgia and everything no it's like an actual just tv show regular tv show oh my god because you know what we can't create anything new it has to be something that's already been made hey disney rachel lee cook her first film was starring as Marianne in The Babysitter's Club in 1995. Oh, wow. So a pretty big role for her, but that was her first film. Is that Alicia Silverstone, too? No. Ooh, no, I don't think she was in that okay. one. It's been so long since I've seen that movie, and I don't think I've even seen the full thing, to be perfectly honest. Uh, she would be fairly active every year, starring in a handful of films and making TV guest appearances, uh, but she would go on to have a three-episode arc in Dawson's Creek, which has already made an appearance on our on our show. Uh, she'd vote. She'd voice the character of Chelsea in the cartoon series Batman Beyond, mm. and be in the Sylvester Stallone vehicle Get, Get Carter. Carter. Mm-hmm. I remember that she didn't look too well in that movie. Oh, okay. And I remember vaguely watching that film because of S- Stallone and thinking oh, she's just not that. She's yeah. not that all. All that. All she's that not all that. Yeah. <laughs> um, she looked pretty bad. This is my bias showing, but I think that her absolute biggest role would be playing Josie in Josie and the Pussycats. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that, that was would, a big one. That would not be until 2001, uh, but that has like a huge cult following. Yep. Like people to this day still love it. One of Helen's favorites. Uh, who's Helen? My wife. Of course. <laughs> I mean, we do have a quote that you have to mention her every episode. So uh, lately she's been doing voice work herself. She played Tifa Lockhart in the Final Fantasy video game series. Uh, she's been a star, a recurring guest star in a bunch of TV shows, uh, currently finishing up a film called Film Fest. And the plot description is, struggling filmmakers travel to an obscure festival to sell their movie. Pretty navel-gazing in my, my opinion, but that is what she is working on. All right, Matthew Lillard. <laughs> His first credit is the direct-to-video uh, and I don't know if people don't even understand what that means anymore, but uh, look down upon. 
the director video Ghoulies 3 Ghoulies Go to College. That's his first credit. Uh, but he'd go on to be in Hackers, Amazing. Scream, Scream 2, and SLC Punk, if you remember that movie. Nope. Uh, his career was going pretty well, and after this film, he'd co-star with Freddie Prince Jr. in what? But Wing Commander. Yes, that's right. Uh, he was in the th- horror film 13 Ghosts, and then he played Shaggy in Scooby-Doo and Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed. <laughs> You're not going to believe how many times I'm going to be able to say Scooby-Doo in this episode. Uh, So that actually led to him voicing the character of Shaggy in pretty much any cartoon or video game that featured that character for the next 17 years. So he has been the voice of Shaggy since he was in that movie. Sweet hookup. Great hookup. Like that's giving you like I looked it's like literally every year there is a a a credit of of Shaggy in, in some sort of property. Now. With the exception being, there is a new Scooby-Doo movie coming out, uh, a CGI cartoon one. Do you know how he found out that he was not playing Shaggy in that? No. When they announced it on Twitter and the voice cast was announced, <laughs> he was not very happy about that. Huh. Interesting. Uh, that's a whole thing. But anyways, he would primarily do TV spots and such shows as The Good Wife, Alton Catch Fire, and also Twin Peaks, the new Twin Peaks. Uh, he'll be seen next in the film One Heart about a football team. Football seems to be a recurring theme here, too. It is America. Uh, made up of juvenile offenders and a small-town football coach who has made a decision that would change the lives of the players on the field that night, which pretty much describes every football movie ever made. But I was whatever. just going to quip. That's uh, just, it's America. Paul Walker. Uh. Not much has changed for Paul Walker since the last time we talked about him two episodes ago, uh, but you can hear his credits listed on our episode about Varsity Blues. This movie was written by a Mr. R. Lee Fleming Jr. He had written a couple of TV scripts, but this was his first film. Uh, Two years later, he'd write the movie Get Over It, which starred Kirsten Dunst. Uh, That was his last film, and he would go back to TV and write episodes of One Tree Hill and The Lion Game. His last credit was creating the TV series Light as a Feather, uh, which was airing in 2019. So it is like a fairly recent project. Uh, its description is a group of teenage girls must deal with supernatural fallout stemming from an innocent game of light as a feather, stiff as a board when they start dying off in the exact way predicted. I don't know what that game is, by the I way. I should just, probably look that up. I, I was just no going to say, what does that mean? Light? We should probably look that up. So we, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know. Well, just to avoid playing it. That's too, bad we don't have, too bad we don't have computers. There's no way for us to look this up. Now, I say that it was written by this Mr. R. Lee Fleming Jr., but there's a little bit of conflict over that credit. So let me tell you this. Because of the Writers Guild of America rules, whoever first wrote the screenplay gets credit for that screenplay in perpetuity. It doesn't matter if it's rewritten. It doesn't matter if other writers come in. That first writer always gets credit. So it was revealed years later that the true writer of this film, who wrote large chunks of it, was none other you want to take a guess? Dun, dun, dun. No, I got nothing. M. Night Shyamalan. Oh, fascinating. He was a ghostwriter for years and years in Hollywood. It's like him and Joss Whedon and um, uh, Carrie Fisher was mm. like the three big ones who would come in and like rewrite movies just so they Make could be released. Palatable. Yeah, right. it's like, ooh, the script is not working. Now, here's the thing. 
our Lee disputes some of what came out. He's like, he didn't write most of the movie. It was me who wrote the movie. Um, but the producers say, no, Shyamalan kind of did come and script doctor this pretty good. Yes, it went back to Arlie to like put it into his voice again. But the actual uh, construction of the plot and what was going on apparently was all M. Night's doing. This was directed by Robert Iscove. He's Canadian, born in Toronto. Hey, shout out. Before this, he'd done a bunch of TV movies as well as TV episodes. I did a quick scan. One of the lower rated Star Trek The Next Generation episodes is directed by him. Uh, it was called The Icarus Factor, Season 2, Episode 14. Uh, after this movie, though, he would go on to direct Boys and Girls in 2000, which was also starring Freddie Prinze Jr. Uh, and Jason Biggs. The most um, noteworthy, I guess, other movie he did was from Justin to Kelly. This oh, was no. the movie made with the two finalists in the original American Idol season, uh, which I feel somewhat connected to because I interviewed Justin Guarini uh, on my other podcast, putting it together. Ooh. So he was a guest on there talking about his career in theater and Stephen Sondheim, et cetera, et cetera. However, his last credit was in 2015, the Hallmark movie, Surprised by Love. Love its it. description is this. The story of a young businesswoman who tries to convince her uptight parents to accept her current boyfriend and instead find herself falling for an old high school flame. So again, every Hallmark movie. Oh my God. <laughs> its budget was $10 million. Now in current day, that means 14 and a half. So a pretty low budge film, to be honest. Opening weekend, it made $16 million, about 23 today. Domestically, over its entire run, it would go on to make $63 million, which translates to about 91 for us today. And internationally, it picked up another 39 million, which is 56. So that means in total, $103 million is how much money this movie made, but $150 million in today's dollars. So definitely a fairly good hit. Like this is if if a movie came out today and made $150 million on a budget of 14 and a half, like people would be like over the moon happy. Which is basically if you know anything about Blumhouse films, is kind of their whole MO. Make really small budget films, hope you get a hundred million bucks back in profit. So so that's where we're that where we are. I guess the only other thing I should say, which is fairly obvious if you've watched movies before. <laughs> This is not like an entirely new concept, right? This entire movie is about popular guy trying to make unpopular girl become popular. Uh, in fact, even in the credits, they say this is an updated version of Pygmalion, which I would guess most people have not, probably not seen the play, but you will probably be familiar with the musical uh, My Fair Lady, which is the musicalized version of Pygmalion. I'm throwing it to you because I've been speaking a lot. I want to know your overall thoughts. Of she's all that. We just watched it. Uh, we just watched it. You know, I think there were some interesting moments where I was uh, surprised by how perhaps maybe the word violent or dark. Mm. Dark for sure. Like there are some lines here that I was like, oh, yeah. I don't, I don't know if they, we would even include them now yeah. in some of our films. And it, but it's. Interesting because it's shot in that 90s sort of bright color way. And, I agree. You know, you're just kind of like, oh, everything's so sweet. And then... Actually, can we talk about that for a second? This is very much Old Man Yells at Cloud that I'm about to go into. Maybe, maybe it's... I think it is nostalgia. It has to be nostalgia. I just prefer that color palette. I prefer <laughs> the bright colors of the 90s rather than like the... Like everything looks like it's so desaturated and contrast upped. And like, let's put as much blue light into this 
the frame as possible in in modern films i don't know maybe this is also why i like marvel movies because it has kind of a like colorful more colorful palette to well, it well you liked infinity yeah and, uh, anyways we won't so we won't get into that debate yeah. we'll have to wait until this machine tells us to go through 2000 yeah let's not go there 19. let's not talk about palettes but you know i the only thing i would say not necessarily disagreeing with you i think it might be a reflection, Kyle, on uh, the movies you watch as you get older. Mm. Because I suspect, because, you know, for example, Helen, uh, my wonderful wife, uh, loves rom-coms and spends a lot of time, like on Netflix, for example, uh, watching movies of that mm-hmm. ilk. And, uh, and it's still there. I mean, it's uh, the sort of HD revolution and the modern cinematography and digital cameras have changed the tone and how these, you know, yeah. frames per second... But this idea of, yeah, this kind of like pop colors and, you know, everything's just kind of warm and cute and, you know, it still exists out there. But as we become more cynical as a society, uh, the movies we make seem to be getting quote unquote grittier, whether that's for the better or the worse. But the, so it was a yeah nostalgic feeling, pressing play. Well, well I'm curious though, I know that you're not 100% sure that you actually saw this film when it came out. I think the as we go through this podcast, as we are chained up to these desks with these microphones in front of our faces and doing this once a week, what is your interpretation of what you probably thought then versus what you think now coming back to it 21 years later? That's a hard one. I mean, I think in this, this movie in particular is kind of weird because I'm not convinced I saw it in the theater. I wouldn't have gone to see it on my own, not to be too defensive, but so... If I had seen something like this, it would have either been on a date. Um, With your current wife? So that's the thing. So would it have been, I, I mean, I, I don't know, 1999. I, I don't think I was dating anybody. So mm-hmm. now I'm now that we're actually picking at this. But it could have been like a couple years after too. It wouldn't right. necessarily have to have been in 1999 that you saw it. Right. So now the presumption in my mind is it would have been sitting with Helen like when, when we first started out, probably on VHS. I guess what, I, what I'm kind of noticing as we go through these last three weeks is that I, I, I'm trying to throw my mind back to what I probably would have thought in 1999, but also looking at it through a critical lens of, you know, 2020. And, and those are going to be two different things. And I think it's important to do that. I, I don't believe in being like, oh, this is a popular movie. It should always be popular and we should always have it in the Western canon. This is sometimes the, uh, the, the argument that people make for like Birth of a Nation as an example. It was important to movie history. Great, but it also promotes the KKK. So I could throw it into a trash heap, honestly. I don't care about it that much. So I think it's important to reevaluate films over the years. Yes, still talk about them in context, but also be like, in context is what it is, but also in today's world, it doesn't really hold up all that much. What do you think? Does this film hold up? And it, it, for, for a movie that came out in 1999, is this still something you would go back to and watch again? Well, I, I wouldn't choose to watch this movie again. Mm-hmm. But I think, <clears throat> to your question, I, I think the arrogance of this boy, you know, the um, I mean, it's played with Rachel Lee Cook being, I mean, she's a bit rebellious and kind of aggressive, actually, for someone that's supposed I mean, she, to be. She's wearing glasses. Her yeah. hot hair is tied back. She's supposed to be a nerd. Whatever, or a nerd. geek or whatever yeah. the right, uh, maybe not a nerd, because she's not smart. She's a point Dexter. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this artist and this outcast uh, a character. I mean, there are themes there that people will still identify with. I think those are classic ideas about how human... I think there's a reason why this story gets told often as it is, as it is and updated in different forms. There's, there is something to it, which is, uh, I think as much as even people who reject it 
there is always that bit of desire like oh i wish i was popular for this thing or i wish that people saw me in this way and there's a, a bit of seduction to that um i want like how popular were you in high school well popular is a yeah popular is a weird word i but super popular well i'm <laughs> I would say that, uh, yeah, I had a lot of friends in high school, um, I suppose, and I ha I was always um, emotionally unstable, so I also didn't hang out with anybody. But I think the conceptualization of American high school versus a high school in Toronto is fundamentally different. Like, you know, this idea of prom kings, uh, prom queens and jocks and stuff, that wasn't actually the environment that I grew up in. So, um, And me neither. And this is an interesting thing because that, that is seeped into the popular culture, right? That the prom is so important and the prom king, prom queen, you know, coronation. It's in like so many different American high school films and TV shows. I grew up in a very small Western Canadian town, like not in a million years. Like this, that, that didn't happen. There was no such thing as prom there's king no, or prom queen. There's no Corvette that's being driven. Ex yeah, nothing. <laughs> we went to prom in tractors. Okay, come on. Um, um, and I wish I was joking. Um, so that is, feels like a little bit foreign to me or like um, maybe that's the wrong word to use. Uh, no, it's, yeah, foreign. I wonder, thinking about this quickly, if the movie remake of 21 Jump Street didn't handle this in that scene mm. you know mm. with this idea that these guys show up at a high school and uh, you know the culture's changed you know in toronto i also went to a small i guess like academic i'm air quoting academic high school and so i don't have the uh, experience either of going to a, a general high school that might have had 1500 kids in it so i don't know i think i'm uh, a little skewed I, that I, way. I, I guess there's there's so much wrapped into this because primarily when when these movies are made i mean it's being written by like at best a 30 year old person probably and probably right. way older than that yeah. too in this case it was i think it was 40. so there's that different filter going on with it. it's like i'm trying to replicate what high school is now but really not what it is now and filter through what my experience probably was and and, and trying to still make that relevant i, I still think the themes are relevant 100 percent, but who I, I don't know if how relevant it was to like 90s high school experience necessarily uh, i mean bringing up shakespeare i wonder too i mean I, i've been noticing as i get older that when i see a script particularly in a drama or a comedy or a, or a romance that's accredited to a man i'm beginning to tell by nuance before mm -hmm. i see it. it's written because of the stereotypes of what men are like they don't like to listen and they think they know what they're talking about etc cetera, etc cetera. so this is a movie, for example, where if you're taking the core structures from a pre-written story and then cloaking it mm -hmm. to a what they believe to be a modern uh, audience, it, it gets a little complicated to compare to my experience. So I, I don't know if in 1999 or 2000 when I watched this, I would have looked back and thought um, anything about my high school life or identifying with any of the characters personally. I think instead, for me, I would have just been like, uh, oh, well, here's yeah. a couple of jocks are going to make this dumb bet. Here's this girl who clearly is very attractive, but she put on glasses and wears a frock, so she's supposed to be this loser. Right. The people around her, with the exception, I suppose, of the main villainess, are very, A, not, you know, they're not portrayed by beautiful actresses, and I mean, no offense to uh, whatever her uh, famous name is, but, and they're so cruel. So it's like, mm -hmm. I don't know, it's, it's kind of a different- I think you're thinking of uh, Busy Phillips. Yeah, who uh, kind of made it, I suppose, in the yeah, TV later movie. on. And so they come around, even the, the guys, except with the exception of the beautiful Paul Walker, you know, it's mm -hmm. not this, um, not a bunch of Adonises and hunks everywhere. It's, it's a very weird, a very weird thing. to. Well, own. yeah, I guess let's, let's break that down. Cause the, the actual bet that's going on here, 
that that starts things off right is that uh the character that freddie prince jr is playing he comes back and his girlfriend breaks up with him to start dating the matthew lillard character who is famous on the real world uh when that was a popular show on television so she goes off with him and so he's like oh like i'm most popular guy in school um, I don't want her to be my prom queen. I want to, even though she's expecting that to be the invitation. So is there a way that I can take, find another girl that I can take? Instead of just finding, you know, another girl, there's a bet that happens with the Paul Walker character saying, I bet you can't take the most unpopular girl and make her popular in six weeks and for her to actually be voted to be a prom queen. Well, the, uh, that's, yeah. that's, the, that's the setup of what the, the movie is. And then the tone for Freddie Prince is actually, they're trying to portray this naivety. I mean, mm -hmm. he's not even doing it out of arrogance. He's doing it sort of, uh, I mean, he's got the puppy dog idea of this relationship. I mean, they don't really explain clearly why they've been separated for so long that she's, was it Daytona Beach? That maybe it's an American thing. Mm -hmm. um, so he comes back and he thinks his life seems to be in order. He finds that it's not. And then he has this weird sort of, uh, yeah, existential moment where he's questioning like what the point of being the best and most beautiful person is. And then his best bro, I don't remember what the argument starts off as, and then it becomes this. this well, I mean, it's, it's just that classic thing, right? It starts off as a game, like, yeah. oh, I'm going to get her to be this. And then he actually develops feelings for this girl in the end. Yeah, right, in the end. And so when the Paul Walker character continues to, you know, speak to her as and treat her as the, this game that they're playing he starts the the uh uh Freddie Prince Jr. character starts to push back on that a little bit I mean all of this is fairly standard teen movie fare like I, I can't I don't really think this movie is trying to do anything overtly interesting which is a, a disappointment if we're comparing this to the last teen movie we saw I think I do like it better than varsity blues only because i i don't know i tend to like comedies better i guess i, I forgive them for more of their trespasses but I, it's still not trying to reinvent the wheel uh, by any stretch of the imagination we're also maybe asking too much of this i mean i don't think the intent of this film is to revolutionize uh, no but rom-coms or just i don't know I, I i take a look at that and I, I i where i come from is i can still enjoy a movie that is just frivolous fun I mean, I like most Mel Brooks comedies, and they're not really trying to subvert anything, maybe with the exception of Blazing Saddles to a degree. But really, his primary objective is like, is this funny? And, and I enjoy that. So I can, I'm able to be like, yeah, I'm in, I'm in this. I can, I can enjoy this for, for, for what it is. And for this one, I think maybe part of the issue is this idea that our our society is almost past this by a little bit. I mean, have you ever seen My Fair Lady? No. Okay. Maybe. I have a full visual of the uh, costumes that Dodge Hepburn would have been wearing yes. and some of the uh, moments you, with you the You probably horses. saw them on some sort of like Oscar retrospective. That's the thing. Yeah, like that sort of thing. Yeah. This is my, my criticism of My Fair Lady, to be honest, it, it, which is way worse than what this movie is and what most other adaptations are because that's a movie where you have Henry Higgins, the Rex Harrison character, be a total dick to Eliza the entire movie. He has like a little hissy fit at the end. She goes away and then how does the movie end? She comes back and forgives him. That's how the movie ends and it bugs the heck out of me how that movie ends and how that stage play ends because it's like, no, this is totally false. I hate this. <laughs> I totally reject that. Uh, but the music's great. Well, so I, that's the unfortunate part. The music is so good. And the storyline is like so 
awful in my mind. Just to throw a quick cynical note, I mean, is it false? <laughs> or is that you're, you know, you're wanting... I guess so, but I don't know. The, it doesn't feel real to that character. Let me put it that way. I sure. feel like the character would not make that choice and the screenwriter or the playwright in that uh, situation said, no, we need to have these people get together at the end because audiences won't want to uh, come back to this play or this movie if they don't end up uh, at the end. They didn't work enough on the redemption of the male character. Correct. Because the, the male character doesn't, doesn't do any type of redemption. In fact, his last song is talking about how... He just uh, won. No, no, but about how uh, awful women are. Yeah. <laughs> like that's basically his last song. And then we go and he's forgiven. Anyways, this is not an indictment on My Fair Lady. If we ever do 1962, three, whenever that movie came out. We'll be back. We'll be back and talking about that. Uh, I guess where I was driving at, even though I don't think it's trying to redefine anything, I think there, there's these really interesting pieces of world building that they don't ever go in and explain, but they're still there. Uh, so Karen Culkin, for instance, plays the younger brother of Rachel Lee Cook in this movie and has two uh, hearing implants yeah. uh, on his ears. And they and never explain why. It's just, that's the way it is. And by the, it doesn't start off this way, but by the end of the movie, he's implied to be somehow behaviorally impaired mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. way that the quote unquote bullies are treating him and the way they speak to him. Although throughout the movie, you don't get that visually or through the narrative. I mean, every time Freddie Prinze or the father are speaking to him, he responds as right. you would yeah, assume yeah. a human being would speak. But the, so I thought that was kind of interesting. There was a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of elaborate costume work, if you want to call it yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, there's that, but I think even like her dad, um, oh my gosh. Kevin you know, Pollack. Thank you, Kevin Pollack, so famous comedian. And he shows up in like supporting roles all the time. I think he actually does a pretty great job of being like the dad, like the stereotypical dad in one of these movies. Also the sage. Right. Know, like he knows everything. Like yeah. He knows the boy that she has to be going out with and is like able to point her towards the. Without the right interfering. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's like that very, like very movie, very film like uh, thing that can happen. So I think that he tended well. And then talk about like stuffing your supporting roles with like famous people. Cause even at the time they were pretty famous. Like you have, uh, Lil Kim and it's like like says one word I think in the entire movie. Yeah. Uh, but Usher is the Usher. school DJ, um, uh, famous or famous adjacent at that time. Which I mean, talking about problematic things. This is a Miramax film, so this is the Weinstein's that had had the uh, the purse strings, and apparently it was Harvey Weinstein calling in favors to fill out the cast with with other people. So that's the thing about Hollywood and uh, movies that make it to this level of being both uh, produced, screened, uh, promoted, as we're learning, again, cynically here in the modern era, uh, it is not as innocent and naive as it used to be. Right. So if you want a context, if I watch something like this in 99, I would think, oh, Rachel Lee Cook is this you know, up-and-coming, beautiful uh, starlet. So she's coming up on her own merit. And, uh, you know, Freddie Prince Jr., as much as I wouldn't have agreed that he's uh, hot, but he must have some something mm -hmm. um but that something has become quite a darker yeah. interpretation lately uh, so that's also something hard to come back to you know asking how would i have as a younger man in my early 20s interpreted this movie i have no idea like, it's hard to say like i probably would have if i had seen this at 15 years old i think i said 16 the last time but i hadn't turned 16 yet i will turn 16 in july uh of, of 1999 so at a 15 year old I think I would have probably just enjoyed it for what it was. Sure. I could have done that. But I was also, like, like I told you, I was becoming super pretentious at the time. And like, 
subscribe to the Columbia House uh, AFI's 100 Best Films of All Time list. So they kept sending me things out for me to watch. So I was probably getting into that. Like, this isn't real filmmaking. Yeah, Citizen Kane. This isn't this isn't true cinema. Citizen Summer. No, I am. Um, what is this? This is, this is color. Not interested. <laughs> the one thing I, I think I distinctly remember was uh, liking that the sport was soccer as opposed to oh, yeah. American football. The, yeah, which so is what like, I played until the actors uh, were shown playing it and then i would have been could not do it physically upset about all. how awful they actually look a couple things i that i've written down here in notes so who has a school dj mm. this is also another thing i find that happens in a few different american yes. things maybe there is maybe there's someone who comes in and does like morning announcements or something like that we had again morning not a thing not a thing that happened in my school we had morning announcements i don't think we had like a school dj it wasn't like yo Jazzy Jeff, he's up there and everybody's giving him high fives as he walks out. We had Raekwon, so. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting, all right, all right. No, um, but I think there would have been, I don't know if they were from, you know, the drama class and there would have been uh, an assortment of fellow students that would go up and read uh, announcements in the morning. Even in Emerson's new school, there's uh, kids that come in and read uh, knock-knock jokes and stuff like that of that nature. But yeah, this like saved by, like all of the, American way of experiencing school mm -hmm. uh, is foreign in general. Um, yeah. Maybe just, I wouldn't have thought of it as a negative thing. It would have probably been more of a, like a fairy tale thought. You know, you think of this idea of like, not so much this is what life could be and I want it, but this is just like a, a fantasy world where, I mean, not just because it's Usher, but anywhere where they've got a cool DJ hanging out yeah. in this high school and, or un, even in a university and they've got this like kind of, you know, this, even the idea, I mean, we had a gym and it had a locker room, but yeah, I mean, yeah. these places look like semi-professional. all the time. It's like, oh, I didn't have that growing up. <laughs> Do I know an interesting bit of this regionality? Okay. <laughs> you know an easy way to tell if someone was born and raised in America versus Canada? Okay, I'm ready. Tell them what grade, ask them what grade they are currently in. So we're talking about children or teenagers. Oh. Because we say it different. Oh. Um, Canadians will say, I'm in, I'm in grade three. Right. And the Americans won't. They'll say, oh, I'm in third grade. The third grade. Yeah. Mm. And yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing. Also, we say sorry instead of sorry, but oh. that's a whole other thing. And a boot. Um, I need to talk about this dance sequence that happens in the movie because they go to the prom eventually and then the music comes on and then it's like this huge choreographed like broadway level dance break that happens and the sub in 30 year old mm -hmm. dancers yeah. <laughs> right, yeah i mean they're all like late 20s anyways in this movie trying to be teenagers but again i won't hold that too much against them it's not that they don't like the dancing i think the dancing is great like the dancers are, are, are very talented boy does that come as like what is going on no, in this film right now not even a hint yeah. you know if they had played one of the things that i always lamented i suppose mid to late 90s and it was the loss of the musical you know i used to mm. be a big uh, well in my mind not not comparatively <laughs> yeah. but i used to like musicals and what they represented especially in movies and, and uh, that just wasn't being produced it no. just wasn't uh, on vogue yeah by then yeah really by the 90s i had gone away and now dead. even now sporadically you'll get They're like Les Mis or chicago right. they'll come out and right try and do well <laughs> or do like these mashups but this one like you said the, and there were a few comedies and things that would do this where all of a sudden i don't know if it was meant to be ironic or it's just mm -hmm. just a thing they thought would be popular with kids yeah it's, it's weird it's, fascinating. it's just weird yeah. um i guess the other other thing i'll say about the movie that i appreciate even though again this is 
I guess, becoming more and more common, which is like a bit of a subversion of what the ending is because, you know, we're getting to the end of our uh, our game or our bet that's going on. And I think even if this movie had been made a few years beforehand, the Rachel Lee Cook character would have won Prom Queen. Like she just would have won. Because um, it's like happy ending, cool, gets with the guy, kiss, end of the movie. Uh, but they don't. They decide that she loses and it does go with the Freddie Prince Jr.'s like original girlfriend so he can storm away. He's like, I don't want this. So he can actually reject that crown, go and find her by the pool at her house. That's where they kiss and the, you know, the lights turn on and then he has to walk naked as his punishment. That Which also, I should say, I like the fact that we don't, because I, unless I'm mistaken, we were watching with the sound very low, so I don't know, but it, uh, I don't think they actually said the, what the bet was. No. It's ne right. it's never stated. Mm -hmm. It's implied. No, it's not even implied. I mean, it's just yeah. this, uh, it's here's a bat, and then I don't think they say like what the. It's implied uh, that they know the terms yeah. as their friendship. But you know, speaking earlier on your fair lady point, I think that's the good part of the writing. And if that's M Night, then Bravo! Mm -hmm. Like the idea of both uh, mixing in um, the a visual uh, redemption of Freddie Prince Jr. So as they're building up, it's not like he's just going to win because. He's good looking and she's realized that he's the one. Um, he's got to actually get up there, pantomime mm -hmm. this thing. He doesn't even make a, a huge speech that he was wrong. It's kind of like this weird half heart because he's not yeah, even yeah. sure yet. Well, that's the thing because there's kind of these two different writers combating. I would guess, even though I have very deep criticisms of M. Knight's output from like the village to about the happening, uh, the one thing I will say about him is that he knows how to do those moments really well. And specifically in this, I think he was able to like break it. Like, let's do some a few things a little bit different. This is how it all comes together, and it's why the other guy who wrote the dialogue for for what they said. Well, I mean, there's nothing to write home about, but that's presumably like who knows. Presuming I, the rumors are true, but then you know, thinking about your Mar uh, my fair lady, where the guy remains uh, a prick and still wins, like this idea that he's sitting there naked, transformed, yeah. Well, you know, that so everybody he's, notices he's yeah. naked as he stands up. They're like, no, we would know sense. that as soon as. So he's still an arrogant piece of shit. So it's like, he's this beautiful, humble character. They kiss. It's a little bit. So I guess this is why I have a big problem with the whole Pygmalion storyline in the first place. Because that's what the entire story is. It like She has to change and I don't have to change at all. And I, I guess I could go along with that if we were shown at any point that the male protagonist was worthy of that statement right and i don't know who would be jesus i guess um but there's no one ever that i'm seeing that's like yeah like they're a great person and they like they think of others it's like no they're all kind of a little stuck up self-involved in this case want to get laid that's kind of their mo but it's the woman who has to make all this change you can even see that because it's like the sub story that's going on is that she's a painter and like her mom has passed away so she's trying to put that into her art and her art teacher i think what is, what is it to say what, what part of this painting represents you, right? First of all, who cares? Second of all, um, I could spend another 20 minutes on a soapbox talking about I hate that type of interpretation of art anyways. Um, but by the end of it, there's that, I think, an awkward scene at the prom where that same teacher comes up and is like, I knew you had it in you. Right. I saw your painting. I put some letters into like Harvard or whatever. The You're going to make it. You're going to make it. I'm like, okay. Well, <laughs> Anyways. I mean, that, I think that was the attempt of maybe this is why this movie's written, you know, to take that story and to try to make a male character that you actually might have yeah. empathy for. And to their credit, 
they do a reasonable enough job to make Freddie Prince Jr. not look like an asshole throughout the whole movie. Right. I mean, he, like he's not. Yeah, he's. I will say this: he is not as bad as Henry Higgins is. No, and he's. I mean, until Paul Walker finally tears his mask off and is revealed to be, you know, the again the smoking, uh, lecherous, drinking, uh, evil, mm-hmm. you know, uh, cartoon bad guy. Placing them against each other, it, it feels childish. He's he's you know he's undecided about how to follow his dad and you know all this stuff. There's some depth or at least uh, mm-hmm. complexity and he's not just this proud uh, prince who is always going to win i i guess i would just love to see and if, i guess if any listeners have an example of this i'd love to see an adaptation of this story where the male protagonist is uh, a good person uh, i mean you still have to have some faults here and there but it's still like down down earth is not the stuck up person at the beginning yeah. Um, anyways, looks like the machine here has had enough of us talking. Actually, we should just quickly point out uh, one thing, mm-hmm. uh, which is the implication of how dark the American society was about to become. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. I know that we kind of sprinkled that in at the very beginning, but the fact that that girl says like, you should go and kill yourself at and the that, very beginning. And, and that's, you know what? That's so night, right? That's so yeah. shameful. Like, yeah. It starts off as... You don't even think it's bullying at first. They're no, like, it's like, over here. We want to talk to talk you. To you. Well, I love your painting. Blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And then it slowly devolves into like, and you should go and kill yourself. Yeah. And uh, I don't even, I don't know if in, yeah, again, 1999, I would have picked up on that. But uh, probably not. But, all, but and also what's, what's interesting. I mean, 1999 is also a pivotal moment in American history. I'm sorry, machine. Yes, I know, but we'll be finished in a moment. But 1999 is this very pivotal moment in the culture of America and really North America because Columbine happens just a few months from when this movie comes out. And there's a later scene where Kieran Culkin is being bullied. And this is the moment where Freddie Prince Jr. stands up for him in kind of a gross way, but he still stands up for him. And the one shirt that the, the person is wearing, what the bully is wearing says like, what is it? Kill all artists. Kill all artists. Yeah. Which is, which is such a weird thing to have written, which I'd like, a, I don't know what the, where that mentality is coming from. Why that teenager would have such a hate for artists, and he's not shown in any other scene. No, he's only association. In that scene. I mean, if, if it was a scene where the bullying girlfriend had a boyfriend who was mm-hmm. also, you know, but he comes out of nowhere, and then that other character actor, he's always yeah. playing the mean. I mean, boy. I guess that would make more sense if it was the girl again, yeah, happening or something. Or something but, but. My God, like those two but moments. they go real, they go hard. Yeah. They go hard in the bullying aspect in this movie, yeah, for be- sure. Yeah, it was, those were two jarring little moments that in hindsight uh, were uh, quite uh, maybe prophetic on set. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> okay, let, let's wait for this uh, new printout here to finish. Uh, okay, so here's some trivia. One of the big things, uh, we saw the cameo that happens in this movie, which is Sarah Michelle Gellar shows up for whatever it is, five seconds, mm-hmm. smiling. There's like the little wink to the camera. Um, there is another reason why this might have happened because this entire movie is shot at the same high school that Buffy the Vampire Slayer was filmed at mm. in the first three seasons. So maybe uh, instead of M. Night, maybe Whedon's involved. Maybe too. Whedon's involved, yeah. One of the subplots that goes on is that Zach, the character that Freddie Prince Jr. plays, cannot make a decision about which alma mater he wants to go to, what to, uh, university he wants to go to. Which is also an interesting thing that that was also happening in Varsity Blues. Again, weird kind of <laughs> things that we're seeing as we go through this year. So Zach doesn't want to go to his dad's school, which is Dartmouth. All right. His dad is played by Tim Matheson. You know why that's important? 
No. Tim Matheson starred in National Lampoon's Animal House back in 1978, which was partly inspired by the time of the film's writers that spent time at Dartmouth. And at the end of Animal House, Matheson is said to have moved to California to become a doctor, which he is in this film. Mm. So this is basically just the extended Animal House averse, apparently. Intentional or accidental. Mm -hmm. There's a link to Animal House. Yes. This is my favorite one. Because we kind of noticed a little bit. Remember there's a moment where, uh, I forget if it's like a picture frame she's looking at, but it's the Hanson brothers, right? Yes. This in the picture frame. So the film apparently contains several hidden references to the pop group Hanson, aside from the photograph during uh, Taylor's campaign. So the two main characters are named Tyler and Zach, two of the members of Hanson. Mackenzie and Jesse, two minor characters, were the younger members of the Hanson family. There are more than three. There's, yeah, I guess so. It's, I, it's kind of like the Jonas Brothers. There's a little baby Jonas. I didn't know that. Not that I know anything about the Jonas Brothers. <clears throat> okay, so the time of truth has come. We need to rate this film and see where it lands on our yearly uh, list. So uh, what would you give as a rating for She's All That? Oh, man. The two thoughts I have is my rating, if I wanted to rate how I felt at the end of having watched it, might be a three. But then I might knock it down 2.5 when you ask me whether I would actually watch it again. Because I will not watch this movie. Well, you, ha- you, you have to give me an answer. <laughs> Shit. All right, let's be nice. I'll give it a three. Okay. So Dave is giving it a three. I am giving it a 2.5. However, because of how uh, averages work, that means that this movie is going to be rated 2.75, which means it is currently our best film ding, ding, of ding. 1999. Pushing Varsity Blues down to second place. It's... Uh, She's all that. <laughs> she is. Yep. She is all that. Okay. Well, David, I think I think we did it here. Um, I'm very interested to see what our movie for next week is going to be. Here it is printing out. Oh, well, this is going to be a bit of a different pace. We're going to be seeing Payback. Oh, sweet. The Mel Gibson. Nothing problematic with Mel Gibson. <laughs> oh, that, I, we won't get into that, but that movie is fucking... So, uh, I guess I can unshackle myself and... Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's really just decorative, the fact that I make you, you know, lock yourself to the table itself. Right. I just like you to see you in chains sometimes, <laughs> David. I, 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 I get that a lot. Yeah.